interesting how people just trickle in. Okay. It's too loud? Sounds loud. Okay. Well, good morning. I think I know pretty much everyone, but I'm Ken Basinger, and a few weeks ago, uh, actually several weeks ago, Joe asked me to fill in. We had a couple of weeks gap, and he asked me to find something to talk on. So I'm sort of, I'm just filler. I'm just taco meat. That, the spongy part of the taco meat, you're really not sure what it is, but it's something in there, it tastes meaty. I'm just filler. And Joe asked what I'd like to teach on, and I looked over at my bookshelf, and I had this book that I've been waiting to, to read for a long time, R.C. Sproul's book, The Soul's Quest for God. And I said, this would be a good reason to push me to read the books. Y'all have books in your shelf that you're just waiting to somebody to tell you to read it. So I read through this book, and it really encouraged me to take these two weeks and just kind of give you the basics of the human soul, and it won't, don't expect it to be anything dramatically different. If it is, you should worry. Uh, it's just about the soul. So here we are. Um, I'm going to throw in a couple of fish stories today. You do not have to pay extra for my fish stories, but they will be in there. So let's start with prayer. Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your loving kindness that you shower upon us undeserved. You thank you that you created us in your image, that you've given us a soul that can worship and grow. And we thank you for that. We pray that you'd be with, with us this morning as we study your word and we understand what you've created. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to tell you that there's something wrong. Something is not quite right. It's deep inside of us, and it's unsettled. If you've been a, a believer for very long, you kind of know this. Just something doesn't seem right. I left a blank on your sheet there. Uh, you can kind of fill in the blank. Something is unsettled. Something isn't complete. Um, we find relief in our souls from this unsettledness at times, but it seems like it flees away from us. And the inner peace that we're looking for, sometimes it's like the rainbow. You're just almost got it and it moves away. So we're talking about just the soul and its desire for rest, and I just label this next two weeks the progress of the soul's rest. Um, at the top of your sheet, I've put two questions at the top. You can fill them in anytime, but go ahead and fill them in. They're basically, who are you and where do you live? These aren't, aren't trick questions. When you start a new meeting, you, you come into a meeting, you, the first thing you do is you go around and tell people who you are, what you do. So go ahead. Take a few minutes. As, as I talk, you can do that. The soul's desire for rest in God, it fills, the scriptures describe it for us in some ways as, as sadness sometimes, if it's dark and gloomy at times. Adam fell naked and afraid. Especially the scriptures use the terms being thirsty and being hungry for God. And every Christian experiences that and have walked through that. And there seems to be a parallel between 
the body and the soul. Uh, the soul feels bad, the body feels sad. The soul is excited, your body tends to get excited. There's a connection. So I want to start uh, these next two weeks. Uh, your outline's kind of turned around. I want to give you uh, two basic rules as we start the next two weeks. The first is to remember that the journey of the Christian life is not a short-term trip. It's a long-term trip, and we have to avoid any, any quick solutions to Christian maturity, to our soul growing in rest. There's, no, there's nothing quick about it. If you think about it, if we choose an elder for the church, there's somebody who's been tested, they've been tried, they've seen the fruit of their life already, you don't run in and grab someone and make them an elder, right? We have to see. It takes time for this to happen. 2 Corinthians 3.18 reminds us we are transformed from one degree of what? Glory to another. It, it's a process, right? There are no quick fixes for this. It is work. The second thing is that we only want to rely on scriptural advice, right? It's trusted and it's helpful. And here's your first fish story. So my son and I got his kayak out for the first time. We went to Granbury Lake. And there's, if you've ever been down there, there's canals that go along the patios and the houses. So my son and I, Matthew, were out there fishing. And along the process, one of us gets his line caught up in the tree. I'm not going to tell you which one of us, but it wasn't me. Okay. I didn't do it. And we're sitting there pulling on this limb, trying to get the, the lure out. And along the Beside there's his house, and this little patio door slides out. This little bow-legged man comes out, and he points up there, and we think, ah, he's got a solution. He says, you can't catch any fish up there. <laughs> he takes his little bow-legged legs, he goes back in the house, and he closes the door. Was it true? Yes. Was it helpful? No. <laughs> Was it encouraging? No. But we know the scripture is. The scripture is true. The scripture will encourage us, and it is helpful. Okay. Jeremiah 6.16, amidst declarations of judgment against God's people, says this. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find what? Rest. Rest for your souls. We don't need anything new. We don't need anything, the next new craze that comes along and tells us these neat quick ways to become mature in Christ and find peace. You know, when I was in high school, it was the, uh, the Pentecostal movement. You'd sit in a circle and we, you'd keep praying until you could speak in tongues. Never happened <laughs> for me. But the promise was instant maturity. You're communicating with God. You can walk in maturity. And it wasn't true. That's not how we grow. I love the way, uh, how many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? <sighs> that, that makes my heart sore. If you haven't, you really need to. It's a great book to read to your kids. But it's just the, the story John Bunyan talks about Pilgrim as he walks along the Christian life. He begins in, in the place of destruction. He's got to get out. His family won't go, but he's going to go because in this little book, it tells him destruction's coming. He follows the narrow way. And along the path, he finds deceivers, dangers, the giant despair that captures him. We all have walked through those things. 
But along the way, he also finds faith. He finds hope. And he finds good friends along the way. And we're thankful for that. And his goal is to get to the celestial city where he knows he'll find spiritual rest. That's our encouragement. And I think it pictures greatly, really, our, our desire to be at rest with God and our soul's desire. I'm going to turn in the front here to a couple of passages. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalms 42. The psalmist here writes what I think we can all identify with. Psalm 42 from the ESV. As a deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. He's remembering the fellowship of worship together. And then verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? So he's speaking to his soul, right? We don't listen to our hearts. He's speaking to his heart the truth. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. And the ESV says, my salvation and my God. At the end there, I don't want you to miss what the end says. My salvation and my God. Reminds us the source of our rest is our creator is God. And he gives us something. He, he's the gift giver. So the essence of faith is understanding who God is and that he is the gift of his presence. I think the NAS might turn it that way. So now I want us to go over to another passage. Let's flip over to John chapter 4. We'll talk about another situation dealing with thirst. John chapter 4. This is the story of the woman at the well. It's a really amazing section of scripture to help us see what God provides for us. Four things that I'm going to bring out about this. Let's start in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. If you remember, Samaritans were half-Jews. They uh, intermingled with the Assyrians, and they were hated by the Jews for doing that. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Stop there for just a second. I want you to note that Jesus is doing the initiating here. He's the one taking the first step to introduce himself to this lady. And he has a request. His request is, give me a drink, right? Think about this. The creator of water, <laughs> the creator of the earth, takes on form. And he is asking for what he's already created. He himself has become tired, scriptures tell us, and he too is thirsty. 
So Christ then in verse 10 identifies the problem. And I'd like to submit that the problem is ignorance. He answers this in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It's the same parallel we're talking about from Psalms. What she needed in her ignorance is to know who this man was, that he was, in fact, the Messiah. He was God in the flesh and that he had a gift to give. Those are the two essences. If you were to uh, crystallize faith, faith, Hebrews 11.6 says, he must, who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So what Jesus is offering her really is the essence of faith. Who am I? And I am the one. I am the source of the gifts that you seek. All right. She's not an easy convert. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you that. She has three objections that we see, and this begins in verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, number one, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Two problems, right? Physical problems. You can't get it, and you don't have anything to get it with, and it's very deep. Where do you get that living water? Third objection, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Okay, she wasn't going to jump on real quick here. She had good reasons to think he wasn't going to be able to provide what he promised. This living water, there's no way you can do this. And who are you anyway? Little did she know that this was Jacob's creator, right? Standing before her. But I want you to focus in as Jesus answers her with the word. In verse 13, his word, he's speaking the words of life to her. Everyone who drinks of this water, the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Kind of telling her the same thing, but in a deeper way. But I want you to notice something happens here. You can't necessarily see it from the pages, but you see it in her response. Yes, she has the word, but there's something else that's happened. There's some awakening that, that has happened in her heart because look at her response. The woman said to, sir, said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. This woman became a thirsty woman. She came thinking she had the answers. I have the pot, right? I got the way to get it. What she didn't realize is that she didn't have the kind of water that she really needed spiritually. Her eyes were opened. And this, this is really the process of how our soul works in many ways. Taking the word of God, he opens the, our heart in some way by his grace and his mercy, and we begin to grow. We become aware of our need of, of our thirst. So what I want to remind us here is that in all that we say in the next two weeks, Christ really is our answer. To the soul that is thirsty, he is the living water. For the person that's hungry, he's the bread of life, right? He's the light of the world for those who are in darkness. He promises to clothe our nakedness. For those who are naked and afraid, he clothes us with his clothes of righteousness. 
So the next part here, next two weeks, today I, I just want to kind of lay the groundwork of the soul. I don't think it's going to be anything new for you. I get, like I said, be worried if it is. But I'm going to, I'm going to talk about how God created our soul, uh, the essential nature of man, uh, the soul's purpose, why we're created, and then uh, we hope to finish up with the soul's eternal value. You know, it's really interesting when I, I didn't know what I jumped into uh, because, you know, you know a little bit about the soul, you think, and then you start reading about it and, you, and it starts getting so big. And you're thinking, okay, I need 12 weeks to do this. So, again, there's a lot that we're not going to talk about. We're just going to hit some of the basics that I think would be important to know. Number one, God's created design of the soul. Soul is defined in the Hebrew as nefesh. Now, those of you who actually can speak Hebrew, it sounds more guttural than that. Am I right? It just sounds like you just had indigestion. I, don't, I can't do that. That's Hebrew. The Greek uh, from soul is uh, psyche, which we get psychiatrists. We think of the mind. We also uh, sometimes see it described as the spirit, which is ruach. Is John here? John's not in here. Okay, he, he, he's pronounced that for me before. And in the Greek, it's pneuma. So you think of pneumonia, the concept of wind. This is the immaterial, on your handout, the immaterial part of man, the part of you that I cannot see. It is the you. Now, I want to go back to the questions that I had you fill out at the top of your handout. Who are you and where do you live? This is your second fishing story. No extra. So one of the greatest things you can do when we used to have a Boy Scout troop, Dan can attest to this, is if you go to Boy Scout camp, it is heaven if you're an adult. I mean, they, they wake you up and you pray and you, you go on to the canteen and they fill you up with food. You wave at your son, see your son, and you go and do whatever you want to do. You go fishing, take a nap, some of you Boy Scouters are laughing. Then they come and wake you up at lunch, hey, it's time to eat, come in, let's go. And you go and do the same thing. And this happens three times a day. It is just heaven. And the lakes are usually pretty well stocked for people who like to fish or pretend. So I'm down there fishing one afternoon, because I could. And the, the boys are out here getting their fishing badge, right? So they have to catch a fish or something and show somebody. And there's this little boy there. He has to be about eight or nine years old. He had freckles on his face. I remember him sitting there with just like this, so sad. And I was over here fishing, and I, I caught a fish, which is, to me, is pretty big deal. About this big. Okay, that's big. And this boy kind of got excited. He said, hey, sir, how did you catch that fish? You know, he, he was so excited about it. And I said, well, I said, uh, what I've been told is you look around and see whatever's jumping around in the, in the weeds and use that. And then we had, we had these flying grass, grasshoppers around. I said, go get one of those. And he, he brought me one half smashed up. So we put it on the hook. He throws it out there and whoop, sits there. And I mean within three seconds, boom, some big fish grabs it and takes it down. And he's just, boy, he's just pulling this thing in. And we pull it in, this really large, really large catfish. And he was so excited. He was yelling. The other boys come over. They're all yelling. We couldn't fish there for the next two hours. Just, if you're fishing, you know you can't yell. And at some point, he stops. I remember this. He looks up at me and he squints his eye and he looks at me and goes, who are you? <laughs> I wanted to say, I'm the fish whisperer. 
Who are we? We are a, a soul and a body. What did y'all put? What did you put on your blank? You're like, it's not a trick question. Anybody? How many of you just put your name? That's what I would do. Yeah, I would put our name. That's who I am. Anybody go spiritual on us and put, talking about the soul? And where do you live? Put wherever your house is, typically, right? Well, it's kind of a trick question, not completely. <laughs> who are you? The scriptures describe us as a soul and a body joined together. Where do you live? You live in the body that God created. You live wherever it goes, you go with it. You hope you want to go with it. We are joined together in unity. Genesis 2-7 is the first time you see the mention of soul. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, literally a, li a living soul. So here you see the joining of the body and the soul, and it is God's perfect creation, the way he wanted it. I was thinking about this concept, too, and I'm thinking about Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones. I remember this story, right? And There's just been this great battle, and there's bones everywhere, and God takes the prophet, and he says, speak to the bones, and you hear this clanking, right? The bones are clanking and moving together, and, and then they grow ligaments and tendons, and then the last thing is the skin starts to grow. It's very creepy but kind of cool, right, if you're a boy. But it's still dead. And finally, he tells the prophet to speak, prophesy, I'm going to fill them with breath. And God sends his spirit, and they arise, and they're a fighting army, ready to do the Lord's work. This is the same description that, that we're getting from Scripture, that this is how we are put together. This is how we're created. On your handout, I have written down uh, two things, the inner man and the outer man. I speak some, some of this uh, at the ACBC conference. It was kind of nice. Some of this is easy. The inner man, we would be describing your heart. The Bible would describe your heart desires, uh, your mind and your thoughts, we would say, come from your inner man. It's the material, immaterial you. It's the you that's here today and I can't see. All I can see is your outer man, which is your body, including your brain, can't see your brain, but I can see your body. If, if I want to know who you are, I'll, I'll get a conversation going with you because I really can't tell, other than if you're a little sleepy this morning, I might be able to tell <laughs> your soul's kind of tired. Uh, if you're yawning, I can tell. So there are some, some attributes that we can kind of gain from one another that way. But the real you inside, I can't see, and it has to be dug in to understand. We need to remember a two also, and our design that we were created in the image of God. We are given uh, attributes of God. These are called the communicable attributes of God. There are some incommunicable attributes that we don't get. These like his omnipotence, his omnipresence. We don't get those. We don't have those. But we do have other parts, attributes of God, such as love, capacity to love, to experience joy, to gather knowledge, Mercy and a sense of justice. Something's just not right. We know that. These are parts. Now, they're not perfect within us. We, we in our sin nature, will twist those things, but they are what God allows us to experience. 
The second thing I wanted to mention is the essential nature of man. Uh, this gets a little bit uh, dicey sometimes. Uh, there are basically three views that we have here. The first is monism. Uh, this is the idea that man is just one element. Uh, you, what you see is what you get. There's nothing more. Uh, there aren't really any Christian religions that would take that view because scriptures talk about uh, our souls and bodies separating to death, coming together in life. Uh, but it is a uh, secular view, you, you could say. So we would reject monism. We're more than just a body. There's dichotomy, which literally means to cut in two. And we, that would refer, we would say, to the body and the soul. 2 Corinthians uh, 4.16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, and all the older people, including me, said, Amen. Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. So in this process of this body falling apart, we were talking about that this morning, uh, what we did this weekend, and yet our inner man is being renewed, our spirit's being renewed every day as we get into his word and we read. So a dichotomist would see us as two, two parts. Uh, the scriptures also mention to us uh, the spirit, uh, and, and the dichotomist uh, would, would, would see those as synonyms of one another. Now, there is another uh, trichotomy, which would see the uh, man in three parts, a body, soul, and a spirit. Those would be the three parts of man. Uh, they would see the spirit likely as the part relating directly to God in worship, it, too, is immaterial. You cannot see it as well. And there are a few verses that could lead you that way. 1 Corinthians 5.23, May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. It, I, I do want to say that Reformed churches, including Calvary Bible Church, do support a dichotomy view of man. If you are a trichotomist, we don't hunt you down. <laughs> You're welcome to think that. It's fine. But it's not from our teaching. And most Reformed churches are that way as well. We see, for, for two basic reasons, we see the soul and the spirit are frequently used interchangeably in Scripture. Where you see the soul having some emotion or doing something, you see the spirit doing the very same thing in that context. Um, and they seem to be interchangeable in Scripture. You'll see the body and the soul, and you'll see descriptions of the, the body and the spirit. So we, we kind of take that view. The second reason is that Scripture does list several aspects of man, sometimes repetitively, and they're not trying to give you an anatomy lesson. They're just trying to help you understand the different aspects of our emotions. Um, so we would say that some of those are just synonyms for emphasis. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven is an example. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, right? But we would see, and, and everyone would agree, those are really talking about the same concept, the soul of man, but it, it's different aspects of that soul. So we find those uh, to be lists that they're saying basically the same thing, but in a different way for emphasis. Uh, be careful if you have the NIV. I think I put a note there in your book that sometimes life, mind, or heart are kind of used interchangeably as, as the... Uh, as they have it there, because it's not a very literal translation, so you have to be careful. It can be a little confusing sometimes if, you're not, if you don't have a literal translation. Okay, so we've cut that up. Let's talk about the soul's purpose. This, is, this should be fairly easy. Isaiah 43, 7 
says God is described here as calling his people. Back, if you remember, there's judgment coming upon the land, right? He's calling his people. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God made it, and God made it for his, his glory. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if you had some kind of way of measuring that? You know, if you had some kind of device that would kind of measure how you're doing for the day? A little dial there. Whoa, that's not good. <laughs> I'm doing very well today. You're really high. You could gauge how are we doing with performing the purpose for how we were created. The bad thing is, as soon as you have a good day, you hold it up. Hey, look. It, just, it goes down, right? <laughs> okay. Yeah, in fact, that's a bad idea. Don't even just cut that out of the tape. You can. So we evaluate ourselves really by our fruit. By the fruit that God has produced in our lives, that's really the only way. And you say, what if it's fake fruit? Keep watching. Just keep watching. Right? We were created also to work in unity. This is no some spiritual mistake that God has put our souls and our spirits together, our souls. Our body, and our, our body and our souls. There's a purpose for this. They, they're working together perfectly as God had created. This occurred before the fall of man. It's going to come back in the, in the eternity. We get new bodies. So this idea of our body and soul is a good plan. God said it was good. 2 Corinthians 7.1 is a good verse, I think. It says, since we have these promises, chapter 6 talks about the promises of God's presence, going to be with us since we have these promises beloved let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit so there's work for both bringing holiness in the fear of God so our pursuit of holiness is intended to be part of both working on our body we're mortifying the flesh and we're working on our soul we're feeding it with good advice so it is a process this is how God had created us. And if you think about it, um, this is how we complete any good work. Any good work. It starts with your heart and it expands into an action of something that you've done. Uh, I don't know how many of you stayed late for the service last week, but what I saw after service around Dana Delosier was amazing. You saw some 30, 40 ladies praying for that lady because they had love in their heart and it was overflowing in their bodies in prayers. What a beautiful example of the love of God's people that we could visibly see. Um, second thing I want to talk about is the soul's eternal value. The soul's eternal value. Um, need to think for a minute about the value of the soul uh, tell me a few things. What are, what are some things that the world values? Throw them out. Money, yeah. The more money you have, the more, I don't know, protected you feel. I don't know, what, what else? Acceptance, yeah, yeah. And I accepted in this group, that's the, the fear of man is a big concern that we have. Yeah. You can almost see it in the commercials, right? What is the world value? Um, anything else? Get on a few. That's it. 
Youthfulness, yes. Why, do I look really bad today? <laughs> feel appropriate tired. Yeah, they sell youthfulness. Youth, I mean, uh, somebody was telling me they were uh, applying for uh, a position. It was a, it was a professor, uh, and my son and I were interviewing with him. He was looking for an internship job, and he, he was encouraging them to do your in- internships, do your internships, because what companies want these people with lots of experience and very young. <laughs> you <do that? laughs> yes, youth. We value youth. We don't value the aged as we ought to. But what I want to get to you is, is the importance of the immortal soul compared to the body. Think about Esau. Remember Esau? He, he sold his spiritual birthright because he went out hunting and he was hungry. And he sells it. Uh, all these spiritual benefits that God had provided for him, he sells it for a bowl of, I guess it's described as red stew. And you think, wow, value the body much more than his spiritual birthright. And then you think of the example of Christ, tempted in the wilderness, remember? Forty days, hungry, and he refused. He denied his body, and he, he did the example. He brought the scripture. He was faithful to the spiritual promises that he knew were set before him, and Hebrews 12 reminds us of that. So the soul's immortality, 2 Corinthians 5.1 says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So he's talking about our earthly body. It will be destroyed, and yet this new body that we're given, this new tent is, will be eternal, and it will, will, will be with him face to face, we'll see him. You know, we see this all through scriptures, uh, although the, the scripture wouldn't use the word immortality, it's, it's throughout. Um, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Again and again, you see the promise of eternal life, and Paul, in uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians, I'm jumping off my notes here, talking about how that we, above all men, uh, are worthless if we're not preaching the hope of the resurrection. And John talked a little bit about that last week. So, the soul's immortal, so it has a much greater value than our body. We should put much more emphasis on that than a body that's temporary. Should we take care of our body? Yes. Should we be holy with our body? Yes. But compared to the soul, the soul has to be more valuable. Now, God warns us what it is that we ought to fear in Matthew 10, 28. says, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a good, there's the right perspective from our creator, right? The body is temporary. Put your hope, put your uh, emphasis on the spiritual part of you, the immaterial you. It's very important. And then I want to spend some time on the soul's responsibility. The soul's responsibility, and I had two aspects there. Coming from Ezekiel 18, verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. I think John mentioned this last week as well. The soul who sins will die. 
This is written in the context where you have judgment coming upon God's people. And it's very easy to say, hey, why are, why are we being punished? It's, it's my dad. It's those guys. It's not really me. It's blame shifting in a sense, right? And God makes the point, the soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, you are responsible. So we too see two aspects here of the soul's responsibility to God and why that's eternally valuable. One is God's indictment. God's indictment. This is a staggering moment in the Old Testament. It's like the rock that stands in the midst of an ocean that's crashing over it and the ocean split. It sits here to remind us, the soul that sins will die. Okay, we're not just talking about the body. We're talking about an eternal state. The soul who sins will die. Much more valuable. Now, when you think of death, you think about death, really we're talking about uh, a lack of life, right? Uh, sin is often portrayed that way. So when we say spiritual death, we're talking about a separation from the life of God and what he brings in that. And that's true of really any sin. Um, one definition of sin, which I really like, is some good thing corrupted. Some good thing corrupted. Some of you are looking at what is he talking about? <laughs> Sin, if you, you know, we can read in the scriptures of things that we're not supposed to do. But in the midst of that not doing, there's something that you were supposed to do. And you see this a lot in the scriptures. You see it in Ephesians 4, uh, which in, in the counseling teaching we use a lot. Uh, when is a liar no longer a liar? When you stop Lying, okay. If you stop lying, you've, you've done the first step. You're kind of a liar on vacation. But the guilt is still there, right? What were you supposed to do with your mouth? What, was, what were you created to do? To lie? No. Repentance and faith looks deeper than just the sin that you committed that missed the mark. And you turn and start doing what it is that God had called you to do. So you stop lying and you start telling the truth. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. God expected us to use our mouths for his glory by being an encouragement to one another. That's why you were created for his glory. Yes. It's a way of seeing that. When is the thief? Ephesians 4 again. When is the thief no longer a thief? When he stops stealing. Yes. <laughs> You've done the first step. But repentance is not here yet. Again, we're a thief in the Bahamas. <laughs> Just taking a break. <laughs> Haven't got anywhere. What does it say you do? It says that you go and you get a job with your hands. God gave you hands for a purpose. Get a job so you can be generous, right? Which is love. So what I'm trying to, to get here is the combination of the soul and the body from love comes everything else, right? We do it with the goal of glorifying God. It comes when we're lying. That comes when we're stealing. It's doing those things and stopping those things, but doing something else for the purpose for which it was created. And it's our heart that is the problem. It says they always go away, go astray. Hebrews 3, uh, 8 through 11 talks about uh, God's discussion of Moses and the people coming out. He said, they always go astray in their 
heart. This is where it starts. This is where God wants to make the changes. This is how you truly love people. The other part of this is God's ownership. God's ownership. Ezekiel 18.4 again reminds us of something. Behold, how many souls are mine? All, also. Are we talking about just all the believer souls? No. All souls are mine. God created them. They are his. They, they are owned by him. There, there is no free spirit. You heard this. Well, I'm a free spirit. I'll show up at church some other time and do it my way. Free spirit. No. No. You are owned. God created you. You have an owner. People don't like to hear that. <laughs> the world doesn't like to hear that. But it's true. And because of that ownership, because of that ownership, we're responsible to God. Now I'm coming to Timothy. I'm going to take Timothy's glasses. Ah, here they are. I like these glasses. Maybe I ought to keep these glasses. The problem is, they're not mine. So, what crime did I just commit? Stealing, because they're not mine. So, I'm responsible to Timothy. I'm sorry, Timothy. Because <laughs> they're not my glasses. But what I want you to see is because all souls are his, we are responsible. Thank you, Timothy. We are responsible to God. There is no free soul. He owns us. He sets the guidelines. We were created for his glory, and we miss the mark. We miss the mark. All right. The last thing I wanted to mention is Compared to all the world, what is greater than our soul? Matthew 16, 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Answer? Nothing. There's nothing, though. Have you ever been in a bartering situation? Uh, Back in the day when I was younger, we used to go down to Matamoros, Mexico, open market. Everyone ever used to go down there? You go down there and you get to barter. Yeah, you get to barter down there. You know, they offer a price and you offer, oh, I think I'll pay this much. And there's this fun back and forth. And somewhere along the line, you both agree. You may not feel like super happy at the moment, but when you walk away, you're both happy. Right? It's fun. If you've been open market, you get to barter. Well, there's no bartering for your soul. There's nothing as valuable as your soul that you have to offer in exchange, right? If you're sober, there's nothing. And it reminds us of some of the great people that we read about in Scripture. We see this um, understanding that the body is temporary, the soul is eternal, um, I put the example of Jim Elliott as well there, uh, but I would also say Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. You see the stories of Abraham and David and, and the trials that they went through because they were willing to sacrifice their body because their soul is immortal. Their soul and the hope of heaven, the hope of rest for your soul is there. And I wrote Jim Elliott's, and we've heard this quote several times, but I'm not going to miss it today. He said, he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. There's a man with the right perspective that understands 
the much more value of the hope that we have in heaven, of the eternal rest that God has promised us, rather than our temporary body. And if you know the story, you know he, he did give his body in 1956. The, the Indians there, the Aka Indians in Ecuador, took his life, he sacrificed. But to him, he wasn't being foolish. He was putting the right value on pleasing his Lord, living a life that was pleasing to him. Amen? So, just a summary here. This is just uh, the basic framework we wanted to talk about today, just to get you to understand um, the concept of our soul, the value of our soul. And uh, I, I just wanted to tell you a couple of fishing stories, too, to be honest with you. I just thought those were never free. A uh, couple of questions that I would challenge you to think about. Do I understand the value of my soul? Do I really understand the value? How much time do I think about my soul's rest? Have I forgotten the purpose of my soul? Maybe we should get the glory meter out. And number three, am I hungry and am I thirsty for a deeper rest? Because the woman at the well is our reminder. She became thirsty. How thirsty are we? I'm saying this to myself. How thirsty am I? The next week, to, uh, next week, I want to talk about what the scriptures present to us. How do we, how, how do we actually pursue rest? How do we pursue really Christian maturity, and then culminating in our eternal rest? And what promises do we have sitting in front of us? So we're going to get to the the real uh, meat next week, and we look forward to that. I do have some homework. Hey, who said there was homework? This is Sunday school. For those of you who want to take the challenge, uh, I'd be interested, and we'll, we'll open next week with this discussion, uh, the homework, comparing the woman at the well's response in John 4, 15. Remember, she says, Sir, give me this water at this moment where God takes the word and enlightens her soul, and she says, I, I want that. But look, if you have time, John 6, 34, where Jesus has just fed the 5,000, Right? And they're following him, and he's talking to them about this bread of life that they, they won't go hungry again. And they ask him the same question. Well, give us this bread always. But there's a problem with that. You'll have to look at it and see, all right? And then y'all can come back and give me why it, why it is that, that it wasn't mixed with faith there. So that's our homework. All right, well, let's pray and... We'll find out about announcements in a second. Lord, your word reminds us, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His yoke, your yoke is easy, and you promise us you shall find rest for your souls if we seek you. Lord, I pray that we would be hungry people, we would be thirsty for your word, we would not be satisfied with where we are now, we would live a life that's pleasing to you for your glory, and I pray that this week we will begin to become thirsty. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.